This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean has a PhD in computer science, was a postdoctoral student at Stanford's medical school, and is an ex-Googler and startup founder, now serving as head of developer relations at Skyflow, an architectural solution for data privacy. Sean has published works covering a wide range of topics, from information visualization, quantum computing, developer experience, to data privacy. You can find more of his work by following him on Twitter, at Sean Falconer. Permissions are hard, and they are becoming harder as we move more into the cloud-native ecosystem. If we go back in time to a point where it was just a single monolith that you were building on your own, you'll probably have a framework to manage the permissions for you. But when you are working with distributed microservices, especially if you are a polyglot, you can't use those solutions anymore. So you end up having to sprinkle a little bit of access control into every little microservice and component that you build. In addition, with the scale of modern applications, it's no longer just your services. There are a lot of third-party services that you have to connect to. Think about things like authentication, billing, analytics, and other stuff that you combine from external services into what you are building. Permit.io empowers developers to bake in permissions and access control into any product in minutes and takes away the pain of constantly rebuilding them. Ora Weiss is the co-founder and CEO of Permit.io and joins us today. Or welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So just to kick things off, can you start by introducing yourself? Who are you and what do you do? That would be a good place to start. So my name is Or Weiss. My background starts in the intelligence core in the IDF, where I was an officer, developer, reverse engineer, yada, yada, yada. I worked in a unit that is the equivalent of the NSA or GCHQ. Afterwards, I worked at a startup that did containers before containers were a thing, but before really bad go-to-market, definitely not good as Docker's. Afterwards, I worked at a couple of startups, was a VP of R&D in a cybersecurity company that caters to governments and like-minded agencies worldwide. Only worked on defensive projects, not offensive ones. Super proud of that, especially in retrospect. And then between late 2016 up till almost three years ago, I co-founded and ran a CEO DevTools company called Rookout, which is a production debugging solution. I'd even go as far as saying the company that created the production debugging space and still a stakeholder in that company, but not actively involved, so just on the board. And during my time in that company, I ended up rebuilding access control for our product five times in a company that wasn't even three years old. And I was like, well, this is stupid. I don't want to do it once, let alone five times. Thinking back, I realized that I've been building this like thousands of times throughout my career, and at no point did I want to. I wanted to actually build my product. And that brought me together with who's nowadays my co-founder of Soft to create Permit.io, which really focuses on that pain point, not having to deal with this crap and actually being able to focus on your product. And we call that Permit.io and the full stack permissions as a service. Awesome. Yeah. As a longtime engineer myself, I love products that make my life easier. You know, I didn't get into engineering so I can build authorization. You know, it's not fun. I've done yeah. it too many times as well. But for the uninitiated out there, 
if someone was not, you know, to use a service like Perma.io for authorization, what does the typical engineering process to create an auth system look like? You know, what does the team need to think about and consider? And, you know, how hard is it to kind of roll your own system? So in general, when I meet people and talk about this problem, I kind of like to help people think that there are best practices that you can tap into so you can get this right. And those best practices are also found in open source projects and in SaaS solutions like ours and also in our open source project. So those are kind of like the go-to drawers that you can go to for approaching this problem. And I like to think about the journey that most companies go through as they're building this. Almost everyone starts with, let's just have admins and not admins. We as the developers are admins and everyone else is just everyone else. And then you quickly, with customer demands, you evolve to admin, not admin, and super admin. And you think you're maybe done at that point. But then there are more requirements, and then you move to access control lists, and then role-based access control, and then role-based access control with a bit of ownership or instantiation or geolocation. And then you find yourself, oh, with all these attributes, maybe we should move to attribute-based access control. And then you maybe, oh, actually, maybe we need relationship-based access control. And this thing keeps on rolling. And it keeps surprising you. Like in my previous company, Rookout, as I said, I built this five times. One of the times surprised me as we were working with Cisco, we were selling our product to the market with us. And at some point they came in and said, we want our own back office. We want to manage the users that we onboard. And I was like, crap, I didn't plan for that. Okay, let's throw it off again and start from scratch. So the main thing I think developers or engineers need to be aware of, of this space is that it's constantly evolving. Each application is a snowflake. There are always unique requirements that are going to come in from your product managers, from your customers, from your security, from your compliance, and who knows where else. And planning for that, building it with the best practices that will make you not future-proof or at least future-compatible is really where you can find a way to save a lot of pain and a lot of friction. And there are, I think, two key best practices. There's, There's a talk that I give at OWASP on like the five best practices. But the two key ones uh, I'd say is decoupling your policy and code, like having a separate microservice for authorization that is event-driven. And the second one is managing this as policy as code. So sticking to like the best practices of GitOps. So that's usually where I like to start talking to people about the problem, just realizing how dynamic it is and evolving. And I try to help people to get familiar with the best practices so they don't repeat the same mistakes I did. So yeah, I'd say those are the highlights. And the other one is maybe on how people interact with these. So I think the most common thing that people actually don't realize about access control and permissions is that it's all over the place, especially with experiences and interfaces. So I'll just name a few. And you'll see as I named them, you already saw them in a billion different applications. And the sad story is that every time you saw them, some poor schlep of a developer created them from scratch. So things like user management with the ability to assign roles, API key management, secrets management, audit logs, like the ability as a developer to see who did what in the system. And for each of your tenants to see what they did on their own, multi-tenancy, if we're talking about tenants, approval flows, emergency access, and the list goes on and on. So it's best practices, experiences, and just realizing how dynamic it is. Right. So given how dynamic and how many different sort of flavors somewhat of like a system like this that you could build and there's these different best practices, how does Permit.io like actually 
help someone solve these challenges and still have the flexibility to be able to adapt to whatever that person's requirements are? That's a great question. And I think it also touches on like, what is the sweet spot that is required from any dev tool product? So I think products for developers really need to maintain that balance between being powerful enough. So as a developer, you don't feel like you're losing control and being simple enough that it'd be worthwhile to actually use. And I don't think the answer is that you need to be either. You need to be able to be like a slider. You need to be able to adjust for each sweet spot of every company, every developer, every scenario as things are changing for them. And that's really what we're trying to do with Permit.io. So we start with the best practices, those that I mentioned, and we create a microservice for authorization for you that you can deploy into your application. And we manage the policies for you as code. We mainly work with Rego as part of Open Policy Agent, the open source project that we adopted. We manage it with our own open source project, Opal, Open Policy Administration Layer. But in the end of the day, you have policy as code that you can manage in your own Git repository. You can add more code to it. You can do code review on it. You can do CI flows on it. You can run tests and benchmarks. So you always have the ability to fully dive into code. But the main difference is you don't have to. So on top of that, we provide interfaces. And a key one is our policy editor, which is a simplified interface, mainly with kind of checkboxes that I like to say it's something that a monkey can use or maybe even a product manager can use. And I actually found that this joke works best with product managers. So the policy editor is really, really simplified, but it generates rego code for you. So you get the option of not having to write code, not having to learn rego, which is a complex language. It's not like Python or JavaScript. It's a derivative of data log which is a derivative of Prolog. It's a logical programming language. So you can always have the option of diving into it, but the difference is you don't have to. And that's our kind of angle with Permit.io. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, you know, especially now with the, I think, growth of API-based companies, developer-first companies, and dev tools, this balance between like a great developer experience while still giving developers enough like power and resources to be able to do the things that they want to do. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the sort of trade-off between making it easy to use Permit.io to set up, you know, an authorization system and making sure that people are following essentially best practices to make sure that's secure. Like it's great to make it easy, but if it's sort of open to everyone, then that hasn't accomplished the thing that you want to accomplish in an authorization system. So I think the secret sauce there is to really compile in the best practices so you'll be using them without having to actually realize that without actually having to understand that they're there and i think also kind of the maybe easiest way to think about this is the complexities of just policy models like i think most engineers unless they've already dove into it don't really fully understand what's the difference between rbac and abac and reback those can be very complex to understand and definitely to fully understand and if you combine this with the cryptographic challenges that go along with connecting to authentication and managing the data for this and being event-driven and how you manage this and understanding how policy languages work, there's a lot of room where you can get lost. So I think the approach is to kind of bake this in, in a way that when you use the defaults, the best practices would just come into play there. 
And the areas that you need to go and apply more power would, first of all, would be less common. Like for most cases, you don't have to put in the effort. It will just work for you. But when you come to your edge cases, when you come to the things that are more advanced, you will be adding things on top that are already kind of guided by the guide rails that we put in place. But you can still add things without breaking everything apart. So that's, I'd say, the most critical part about this, making following the best practices as intuitive and transparent as possible without having to learn all the complexities. And the second part is teaching the, or at least making the other elements accessible. And that's why I also spend a lot of time just talking to fellow engineers, giving talks, doing podcasts like this, just so people be aware of the best practices. So when they decide to go on their own path, they don't repeat mistakes, mostly. Yeah, it's kind of you need to peel back the various layers of the onion in a gentle way. Yeah. And in a way that is approachable, like this can be really be overwhelming. Like I'm spending a lot of my time just thinking about the problem and thinking about the nuances in it. And unless you have the time to invest in it, it's really easy to get lost. Yeah, for sure. So can you maybe walk me through the process of what it looks like to start using Permit.io? Like, let's say I want to sign up, I want to start using this. How do I get started and sort of how long does that take? Yeah, sure. It's super easy. So first you start by going to Permit.io and you click on Get Started. You create an account and that's essentially it. You can start using everything. There are no limitations, credit cards or anything annoying that we don't email you after that, like really straightforward stuff. And we're really focused on kind of product-led growth. I'm very zealous about it. So you get access to the product off the bat. And we got you to do setup. So first of all, kind of time-wise, to test this on a single application, like a demo application, would take you like 15 minutes, probably less. And to deploy this to production from the customers we're working now, we can see that one developer for like a mid-sized, mid-sized large company can take the entire company from their homebrew solution to us in like less than three weeks. And we can also give tips on how to do that gradually. Like we recommend that you initially run us side by side with your homebrew solution. And there are a few other tips there, but in general, that's the amount of effort that you need to put in. The setup itself is comprised of mainly two parts that you deploy. One is the SDK that you add into your code. Essentially, the main function is permit.check. You're creating enforcement points in your code saying this entity is performing this action on this resource and it returns to you should you give them access or not. And you can apply it on a single line of code. You can apply it at the function level. You can apply it at the middleware. You can also use plugins and apply this in your reverse proxy or in your API gateway and then you can mix and match. But usually people just add it as part of the middleware or in a decorator in, your, in their code. And that SDK talks to a component that we call the PDP, the policy decision point, kind of arcing back to the ZACML days. So the policy decision point is your microservice for authorization. You just you do Docker pool permit IO PDP, and it's there. And the PDP is essentially comprised of three parts. It has OPA, Open Policy Agent, by default. OPAL, our open source that manages OPA for you, and a HTTP API service that the SDK talks to. The PDP becomes, as I said, your microservice for authorization, and it runs everything locally. So when you do authorization queries, you don't have to go outside to our cloud. Everything is answered from the cache. Opal in the background as part of the PDP makes sure that the PDP has constantly all the data that it needs and all the policies that it needs 
to answer your queries, those permit checks that I described before. And that's essentially it. And you can deploy the PDP as a sidecar. You can deploy it as a cluster. It's really up to you how you play with it. It's really flexible. And that's also one of the advantages of working with the open source with Opal. Really, it makes the updates for your application real-time, event-driven. And when you manage it with Permit, the PDP manages all of your data locally. So you don't need to expose any data to our service. So that also gives you kind of that hybrid approach that decouples the control plane from the data plane. So you can work with a SaaS service, but retain all of the advantages of like on-prem. And that's also very important for us because a lot of our customers, I'd say 80%, somewhere between 60% to 80% of our customers are compliance-sensitive companies. Fintech organization, actual banks, healthcare companies, security companies. So we really designed security and that sensitivity with the local PDP from really day one. Yeah, so the data plane is what deployed directly within the customer's cloud service, essentially like locally on-prem cloud. Yeah, so the data plane is actually distributed. I'll give an example for what that means. Let's say you want a policy, like only users that have paid for a feature can use it. That bit of information, that attribute, doesn't sit in your database nowadays. It's in a third-party service like Stripe or Chargebee or PayPal. But you want to be able to propagate that into your authorization layer so you can have that policy. So that's where the Opal architecture comes in. Instead of notifying with the event-driven channel and pushing the actual data from our cloud, instead what we do with the Opal architecture is we push instructions on where to get the data. So your local PDP can access the database that is on your on-prem cloud, your own VPC, or some external service that you're working with without us having to be in the middle. And that gives you both more availability, more performance, and also easier way to manage this while retaining your compliance and security requirements. I see. Earlier when you were starting to walk through this example, you talked about how a company might run their existing sort of homegrown authorization system at the same time as they're migrating. So how does that, like the migration from sort of self-made system to permanent IO work? Yeah, so I'd say, first of all, in most cases, usually you have something in place. It's really rare to see modern applications and especially B2B applications that don't have some authorization baked in. And people usually start with Pyramid by trying it on something on the side, just on a test application. And then depending on the size of their deployment, they'd usually pick one microservice, one service, one sub-application and migrate that. You initially, so you, when you look at your code, and I invite people to look at examples on the Permit.io front page, we have like a before and after kind of view where you can see how your code looks before Permit and after. So currently what you find, you have a lot of if conditions in your code where you have both a logic for the actual application and for the authorization layer that you've built. So it's finding those if conditions and adding next to them a call to permit check. Initially, you just log what permit check gives you and you log what your query did. And you can compare that they've given you the same answer. They're behaving the same way. And then you can just chuck out the old code. You can just leave the permit check in and it resides there. But now you don't have any authorization code in your application. They all move to the decoupled microservice where you can manage it from the back office management area from our policy editor in a separate Git repository, et cetera, et cetera. And that's it. So initially you 
test it on an application, like a couple of minutes, test it on a single microservice that's like half a day, a couple hours, and then you start gradual roll-up to move it to your entire application or set of application, and that will take a couple of weeks where you first deploy this to staging, play with it a bit, say that it is stable, and actually most of the time would be invested in educating the other stakeholders that you want to work with this tool. So the other developers on your team, the product managers, that the people that want more, those more roles or more capabilities. So now you tell them next time you want a role, you go into this interface and you create that role on your own. You don't really open any tickets for me anymore. So you educate them a bit, then you deploy this production, and that's essentially it. That's usually like a couple of weeks at max. So once the initial setup is done and the integrate, like those basically SDK integration is done, is this something that, you know, someone who's not necessarily an engineer can actually update and, and upkeep as the business requirements change? Yeah, for sure. Well, not all of it. You still need engineers to maintain the core elements, but a lot of the main features, a lot of the behaviors like creating more roles or setting more conditions or creating tenants or assigning roles to users. You can delegate those with the low-code, no-code interface to product managers, to security, to compliance, to a lot of non-developer staff. And even better, you can delegate this to the end customers. So we have embeddable interfaces that you can have as part of your application. You can embed them as is, or you can build them on top of our API. And you can, within the confines that you define, you can allow your customers to create their own roles if they need. So if you want, that can be the liberty that you can give them, or maybe that's an upsell feature that you can give them. A lot of times customers want that. Mm-hmm. And they can just do it on your own instead of you constantly churning Jira tickets for every little thing that they want. Right. How do you connect sort of identity of a user to the authorization system that's set up? Good question. So in general, we're part of the bigger IAM space, identity access management. That's identity management, authentication, and then authorization. A lot of time people also confuse authentication and authorization because they sound the same, mostly. And also because there's a fine line between them. But with most cases, you have an authentication solution like Auth0 or Cognito or Stitch or Magic Link or Super Tokens or Fusion Op. There's really a plethora of those nowadays. And all of those guys work with a standard called JSON Web Token, which is a cryptographically signed JSON document. You literally pass that document to permit check. It's like the first variable. And that's how you integrate with the rest of the stack. So the authentication solution through SSO, through SAML or OpenID Connect connects to the your customer's identity management, their Okta or Azure Active Directory. It brings claims about the identity to the authentication solution at the gateway when the user logs in. And then that gets translated into a JSON web token and you just pass it to us. At which point you can also tell us to sync that user into our knowledge base. So essentially you say, this is the unique identifier for this user. You don't have to provide any PIIs, just a unique identifier. It can be the one Mm -hmm. generated by your authentication solution. And that's basically it. You can do more things like translate roles So a lot of times you have an organizational role coming from your identity management, like saying this person is the VP of marketing or he belongs to the HR department. You can use that point to translate that into a role in in Permit. You can say, assign them the application role of an editor or of a manager or whatever is your unique flavor in your application. And aside from that, it's really straightforward. You just connect to it, pass it on, and 
what we try to do is really have clear lines between what's authorization, what's managing permissions and access, and what's identity management or authentication. Sometimes there are cases that are confusing. A lot of times people would say, oh, you have uh, roles in Auth0. I don't understand why I need roles in the permission solution. So it's important to understand that those roles end up to just translating into claims in the JSON web token. You still need to check them with a policy and enforce them in the different enforcement points in your code. And you can definitely still use those roles and you can still allocate them as part of the JSON web token. But the rest of it, they leave as kind of a homework assignment for you as a developer to do all the rest. So that's where we step in and we take it up till the very end of the challenge. Yeah, I think earlier you mentioned about how a lot of companies or a lot of you know developers end up underestimating the challenge of actually building like yeah. an authorization system. So have you found that you've had like an educational hurdle to teach the market the idea that you know building an authorization system is complicated and probably unnecessary thing to do and put your resources behind? So first of all, I definitely recognize that a lot of people don't understand how deep the problem is. I also fell for this myself more than once. And it's really, unless you really zoom out, it's kind of hard to see how big it can get. But I actually didn't have a lot of challenge like with explaining this to people or getting people to see the value. But I think it's really mainly about timing. Like if you go to someone where they everything is working, it's fine, we've built, we have our own homebrew authorization solution, no one's complaining, we're golden. So if you go to them at that point in time, it's kind of a mute discussion because they have better things to focus on. And I think they should focus on those. Unless if it's working, don't touch it. That's fine. But usually it's a matter of a few months until a new requirement would come in as your product grows. And then you need to handle that. And usually what happens is that point is it usually floats in from either your customer or your compliance. And someone opens up a ticket in your ticketing system. And the one opening it is like, Oh, this is simple. It's just like adding another role or adding attribute-based access control on top of our roles. What's the big deal? But when it gets to the actual developer working on it, they usually realize, oh, this is actually several months of development, if not even bigger. At which point, they usually find us either looking at our open source or looking at the content that we create. And at that point, it's like it's a really no-brainer conversation because they've already thought through it. They already know how much work they need to put in now. And they can also start to imagine how much work would be left down the road because they've probably seen it a couple of times before. So at that point in time, it's really an easy discussion. And that's why we mostly focus on people coming into us. We just make it as accessible as possible. We have a community on Slack. We just let people approach us when they when they want, when they're ready. And those conversations are, I haven't had a bad one yet. In terms of education on how to approach this or the best practices, I do find that there's more work to be done there. In general, this space is still kind of nascent. Up till now, people weren't aware that there's an alternative to building this on your own. But in this sense, sense, I really think it's very similar to the revolution that went through the authentication space. Like 10 years ago, if you'd go to someone and tell them, use something like Auth0 or vendors-based authentication solution, people would go, what? Why? That's a critical piece of infrastructure. I'm not going to trust anyone else to do it. And now that's completely reversed, right? People say, what? Should I, I'll build this on my own. What, am I crazy? There are so many pitfalls that I can fall through. And I think the same thing is going to happen with authorization. 
just for the fact that there's so much better things to do for a product that are unique to that product instead of dealing with this crap. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of modern product development is really taking existing abstractions, APIs, and bringing them together and then focusing on, you know, what can you build new that actually is going to serve your customers and your use case better. And the more you can kind of wean down your the focus of your engineers, the better you're utilizing that, you know, very key resource for your company. For sure. You mentioned Opal a couple of times earlier, mm -hmm. which is an open source project that you created as part of Permadio. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what is Opal and sort of how does it relate to Permadio? Yeah, for sure. So Opal stands for Open Policy Administration Layer. When we started working on Permit, we wanted to adopt kind of the best practices and best tools in the space. And we started to look at things like Google Zanzibar and OPA. And we decided that we, first of all, we want to be agnostic. We want to be able to bring in the best tools at each point in time as the market develops new things. And we realized that we need a way to kind of bridge the different components, like bridge between Zanzibar and OPA. Zanzibar is like the graph-based approach that Google invented for their own authorization. And OPA is a CNCF project that really came to fame as part of the Kubernetes ecosystem. We knew we wanted to connect those different components. And B, we realized that we needed, if we start with OPA, we needed a way to bring it to the speed of the application layer. So OPA is a general purpose engine, but it really, as I said, came to fame with Kubernetes. And with infrastructure level access control, things don't change as frequently with the application. They usually change with deployment. So it's okay to have a polling mechanism or to have something that is just static as part of the CI-CD flow. But when you go to the application layer, things change a lot faster with user interactions, like a user invites another user or a user purchase another feature or a user interacts with a new part of the system. All these things can change the data picture, the world picture, that affects your authorization. And we needed a better way to keep that in place and keep it distributed and manageable. And that's why we created Opal. We actually looked at how Netflix adopted Opal. If you look, there's a YouTube talk that Netflix did, gave in one of the CNCF sessions on how they work with Opal. And they created a replicator solution that is very similar to what we ended up doing with Opal. Netflix, unfortunately, didn't open source their offering, so we took on that charge. At its core, Opal is, is a replications engine. It listens into events coming in from different sources, and according to that, replicates data into OPA, so it will be available when queries come in, and it does so based on topics. So you can have different OPA agents through the Opal client subscribe to different topics, so each of them gets the data that they need and only the data that they need as well as the policies that they need and only the policies that they need. The update channel is a WebSocket PubSub channel that is really lightweight and everything is HTTPS and outgoing, so it's really easy to deploy even between clouds. And it creates two channels, as I kind of started to say. There's a data channel and a policy channel. The policy channel, by default, just plugs into Git. Because as we said, one of the best practices with, that you encourage with OPA itself is policy as code. And you want to manage that policy in your Git repository. So Opal can just track a Git repository. It can translate regular files into topics, and you just push a commit of new policies into your Git repository, and those automatically propagate to the different Opal agents that subscribe to them. And with the data channel, 
we created something we call data fetchers. You can basically teach Opal to retrieve data from different sources with simple Python modules. So there's a HTTP data fetcher and a Postgres data fetcher and an LDAP data fetcher, etc. and you can create more. And so when you have different sources of data that you need to sync into your system, and we already touched about this being a distributed event-driven data plane that every application nowadays interacts with, you can in real time interact with it. So I'll describe the flow, for example, with billing, that policy we mentioned before, only users that have paid for a feature can use it. So you can subscribe to a webhook coming from Stripe, for example, that will get to the Opal server. It will then trigger the right topics for the different Opal instances, Opal client instances that reside to the, next to the relevant services, possibly as a sidecar. They would go directly to, to Stripe to fetch the data they need, integrate it into Opal, and by the time the user comes in to query op the uh, policy decision point, Opal and Opal already have the answer to give the right experience. And everything is event-driven. You don't need to pull. You don't need to wait. You can provide the experiences your, the users expect. Like a user that swiped their credit card, they expect to have access now, not like in a couple of seconds or in a couple of minutes or next time you deploy. So that's what, what brought us to create Opal. We were really astounded in how much quick adoption, like a couple of months in, we were already in production in Tesla with the open source project. Their car fleet management solution is based on Opal and Opal, which is pretty cool. And also other companies and the community has grown. And I just love open source because it enables you to interact with so many people and have the conversation around these topics. Hope I covered the question. I think I started to ramble. <laughs> That's great. You know, starting to talk a little bit about maybe Permit.io, you know, internally, how does the product and engineering team set up today and what does sort of the product development process look like? So first of all, we're being a young, still rather small company. We're like, a, we're getting close to 20 people at the moment. We're enjoying the fact that at this size, we can still keep the company flat. So it's just me and my co-founder kind of managing and R&D is completely kind of flat with Asaf managing it. So my co-founder is our CTO. And we try to really bring in core people that are passionate and experienced with this space. So like I'd say most of the engineers on the team come from a cybersecurity, even specifically intelligence core background. All of them have built authorization solutions in the past. All of them worked on sensitive infrastructure. All of them are aware of the minute challenges of embedding this critical element into a customer's application or infrastructure. And one of the other things that we leverage with this core team is the fact that this is a product for developers. So with the company being flat, we also don't have any product managers at all. So when a developer builds a feature in Pyramid, we expect them to be holistic about it. We expect them to leverage their own empathy as developers that have built this in the past and provide an end-to-end holistic experience to our customers and not just a feature or an API. And I think that really enables us to move very fast, provide really high quality solutions and remain very closely in touch with our customers. So people, first of all, it's really easy to schedule calls with us. There's like a Calendly link on our front page. And if you just click on it and pick a time, I'll show up with a couple of engineers from our R&D and will be very excited to talk with you. Like the engineers themselves, they want to listen to your problems. They want to learn how you work on this. They want to see how they can translate that back into what they're building into the product. 
and I absolutely love this. I worked in bigger companies. I had the fortune of growing companies into a larger size, but there's something really, really unique in this size and, and speed that I really enjoy, especially that quick connection and fast feedback loops with, between our own developers and the developers on the customer side. Yeah, you're at this like unique spot where no one sort of has the burden of process. They can just sort of you know, execute on things that they think make sense for the company. Right. And they have the trust and capability to do so. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you share a little bit about what's your tech stack and technologies that you're using for sort of building and deploying this? Yeah. So we're Kubernetes based. I know, surprising, right? We're running on top of AWS. Initially, actually, in the beginning, we were based on Fargate, just when we were kind of like POCing this. But wherever quickly we moved to Kubernetes, so we have kind of like a Pulumi stack on top of that Helm charts and running different clusters for the different environments in a multi-tenant kind of fashion on Kubernetes. And on top of that, we, have, we are mostly writing in Python and Go. We have obviously the SDKs per language. Some of them are auto-generated. It's kind of swagger, but we also we want to have them idiomatic. So we spend time per language to make it as suitable for that language as possible. And we have our front end in React with TypeScript. We recently added Redux. I keep falling in and out of love with Redux. I think there's like really specific usage patterns that you need to stick to to get it to work right. And yeah, so those are like, I'd say the key elements. And obviously, OPA and OPAL are a key part of our infrastructure. We use them both for obviously the customer deployments, like what we provide to our customers, but also internally for our own authorization. There's actually a really huge world of complexity of authorization for authorization. So when you query us, like when you call our API, to, for example, to us add a role, you need to have a role to enable you to add roles. And the service that does this for you also needs to have a role. So we're not fully dogfooding yet. Like we're semi-dogfooding because of the recursive challenges. But we hope like within four months, we'll be fully dogfooding permit, running like a separate clone of permit exclusively for doing authorization for permits authorization. But we're already using both OPA and OPAL as part of our uh, core infrastructure. And that's, um, that's kind of cool to do. Yeah, I love that idea of using, you're doing authorization through authorization. It's like some inception type of thing that's going on there. So, you know, Permit.io is a relatively new company. Has there been, I'm sure sure this is the case, but has there been anything that's like really surprised you in terms of assumptions that you maybe had going in about the type of customers that maybe need a solution like this or the technologies you use that turned out to be wrong and then you had to kind of change gears? So actually... I was more surprised by how many of our theses actually stuck. I think the thing that really, maybe the volume or how strong the it was correct uh, kind of surprised me. I didn't expect it to be so much. But like, I'd say, I think I already said this, like 80%, around 80% of our customers are health tech and fintech and security companies. So we had the hunch that companies that have a lot of compliance requirements would be more excited about our product. I didn't expect them to be the ones kind of knocking at the gate, moving the quickest, because I kind of thought those are going to be slower companies. They have more technical debt and requirements that they need to carry over their back. But it turned out that, uh, that no, there's, it's so critical for them that they actually move faster than the other ones. I'm trying to think of like, other things that like, really surprised me. 
I think I was somewhat surprised by how quickly the space moved from being completely empty to having a lot of players in the space. It's like it become a really hot space. It's not a red ocean yet, like the authentication space where you have like hundreds of companies. We have like still like a, I'd say like ten companies. Like even if you go and count the edge cases, but all of those kind of popped up almost at the same time as us. Which is was very interesting to see. It's kind of cool that like you know you think you have a cool idea, but <laughs> at the same time other people have it exactly that same idea. I think it's also a good kind of supporting proof. Like if I was the only guy, only uh, person thinking this, something would probably be amiss. Right. Yeah. For sure. And it's not necessarily a, a winner take all market. Begin with, there's probably room for you know multiple players with sort of different yeah. approaches to this problem. I definitely think so. Even if you look like if you zoom out at the IAM space, so as I said, it's comprised of identity management, authentication, and authorization. The previous two tiers, IAM and authentication, each of them created multiple multi-billion dollar companies. So there's definitely room for several. I do think though that there's kind of a first leader advantage is these. Like I think, for example, Auth0 has become somewhat synonymous with authentication. Like it's the, a lot of times the go-to, at least up till the, this recent revolution, that's where most people used to go to. I think something similar will happen in authorization. I think there'll be some, like the Jeep or Jacuzzi brand uh, for the space. And I'm completely out of my heart set on Permit becoming it. So what's next for Permit? You know, anything you can share in terms of future roadmap items or any other things that you're really excited about? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's a ton. I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, something that is coming out real soon, maybe by the time this podcast is actually released, maybe probably be out, is attribute-based access control. So currently, the interface that we provide is role-based access control. So the policy editor is role-based. It generates regular code for you. And you can always add more regular code to add ABAC, but you still need to write that code. And you still need to learn Rego, and, and that can be annoying. So with ABAC support, the policy editor is going to generate ABAC code for you. So you'll be able to set complex conditions on complex attributes, but still in that kind of uh, a monkey-can-do-it approach with the low-code, no-code interface. And I think that will really be a significant revolution. We've been doing, like companies have been doing ABAC for a while, but getting to ABAC has always been a multi-team, multi-month project that is very intensive, and it always required high maintenance. With this play, I think it would be the first time that you can move to from RBAC to ABAC without even realizing you were doing it, and enabling the non-technical staff to actually use it with essentially zero friction. So that's, I think, one of the more exciting things that are coming real soon. Other features that are coming in is support for more platforms. So we really, we love OPA. We think it's a great project, but there are other great projects out there. And I think there's a lot to be said for diversification and being polyglot and supporting different tools for different scenarios. So we're already working with several candidates to add them to that pile, both in open source support and in the SaaS service itself. And lastly, I think there's a lot of, I don't want to spoil too much, but a lot of experiences, a lot of higher level interfaces that you can share with your customers, that you can enable for yourself in the back office. A lot of those are going to become even more easy to use and build as part of Permit. 
really aiming to streamline the process for people uh, building applications. That's great. Anything else that you would want our audience to know? Yeah, I love people to know that I always enjoy talking to fellow engineers and fellow security practitioners. I joined the Sneak Ambassador program for that reason, just to be connected and kind of spread the word around best practices for security and open source tools. So I really want to encourage people to reach out, like reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter, schedule a call with me from our website, join our Slack community. It's like on Permit.io, there's a big community button. Just click that. Send me messages. You'll always find me super eager to talk to you, super eager to help. And I try to remove as much friction so people can just engage with me directly. And I want to encourage the listeners to take me on that offer. When you talk to me, I'm not going to try and sell you permit. I'm not going to try to push you anyway. I'm going to be interested in what you want to build. I'm going to try and share the best practices with you. I'm going to highlight the different open source tools and techniques that I know. But it will be up to you to take it to wherever you want. And hopefully we can learn from each other and create better connectivity, better security, and do awesome stuff. Yeah, that's great. So you heard it here. If you have questions for Orr that I didn't ask, you can ask him directly by uh, booking a, a calendarly appointment with him. So Orr, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. It's clear you know a lot about this, this problem in the space and giving it a ton of thought. And it sounds like you're building something incredibly useful and awesome. So I, I wish you the best of luck. And again, thanks for coming at Software Engineer Daily. Thank you, Sean. It was really a pleasure to talk with you and uh, being on the show. Look forward to coming again another time.